Irish podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And Paul, I'm going to get all the way through this tonight. Uh, Stuart had somewhere else to be tonight, but I am joined by the great Dr. Paul Williams. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing well, Paul. You sound surprised great. that I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm not used to being directly addressed. I was, I was someplace else. <laughs> and with us tonight is Dr. Carolyn Chan. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Excited to be here tonight. And this is what your second or third show you've done with us now? Yeah, I think this 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 is my third show. I think second time being on an episode. Um, but we have like a great show tonight. I'm so excited today because we get to talk all about the new CDF guidelines. And I think that this is probably going to be the most exciting talk you've ever heard about CDF. It's going to like blow your mind. We're going to talk about treatments, uh, how we do different laboratory methods to test for it, and some really cool up-and-coming stuff with research regarding fecal transplants. Uh, You'll learn today how many pills you'll actually need to take to have a fecal transplant and a bunch of other cool facts. With the great Dr. Curtis Donsky, he is a professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Dr. Donsky's expertise and research focus includes the epidemiology and transmission of C. difficile infections in the elderly and in nursing home populations, as well as the infection control issues of antibiotic use. He serves as the chairman of the Infection Control Committee at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. So without further delay, here is our discussion with Dr. Curtis Donsky. All right. Well, Curtis, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the show. This is this is a topic that we get a lot of questions about, and we, we do have a lot of questions from social media. So thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. This is tradition on the show. Be, before we get into the main topic, we always ask kind of a couple questions up front. And then the first one is always... Can you give us a one-liner about yourself so the audience can get kind of a flavor of who you are? I'm a 55-year-old infectious disease physician. We're not doing IE research. I like spending time with my family and hiking and biking. Curtis, what what book do you feel like every physician should read? And if you don't have uh, a specific answer for that, then if you could just give me a, a book recommendation, that would be great too. A book that I recommend is called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. A very, very good book. It's a great book and a popular answer. I, I haven't actually read that one. What is the, uh, Curtis, can you give like an example of, of what it, a story from that book or why you think it's so so valuable? Well, he talks about how his father um, died and, and how um, that was different than the way, you know, people often die in hospitals today where it's kind of a long drawn out process instead of more of a natural process. Carolyn, did you want to ask a, a question? Yeah. So so what is the best advice that you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher? Uh, anything you'd like to tell a house staff? You know, I've received a lot of um, advice that I haven't necessarily followed very well, but um, <laughs> one, one piece of advice that I've um, often heard is that that you should focus on one area 
um, in your in you should be you should be focused. You should not be kind of diffusely looking at a lot of different projects. Not projects, and I've never followed that. I do research and all kinds of things that strike my my fancy, and I recommend that to to others as well. That you should kind of follow. Sometimes what you uh, the tangents get you in interesting places. I love that. I love like that generalist mentality. I feel like that's where all the like innovations come from. Yep. Another question that we've been asking recently is, did you have a favorite failure or even even just like a challenge that you had to overcome at some point during your career and, and some that you felt you actually ended up learning something from like a valuable lesson or that that led to something else? Do you do you have any examples like that that you could think of? Um, when I was a an ID fellow um, at Case, we did not have. I, I was interested in doing uh, a a master's degree in epidemiology. I just I'd become interested in doing clinical research, and that was really not available at that time. It is now, but it wasn't part of the curriculum. And so I ended up doing something uh, completely different. I had um, to. I was interested in how antibiotics promoted VRE colonization. So instead of doing a case control study. Uh, well, like everyone else was doing, I developed a mouse model of colonization, and it took us. Then that ultimately led to, you know, collecting stool samples from patients and looking at VRE colonization uh, completely in a different way than other people were doing. So that was, um, I think, a, a good example of how um, sometimes uh, things that look like, like a negative can become a positive ultimately. Yeah, yeah. I've said this. I've said this on the show before, but I. I'm sort of obsessed with like hearing people's stories. Uh, I don't like to read biographies, but I like to uh, essentially hear biographies. And they <laughs> people always talk about that. They always remember the failures, and then uh, the, it seems like the people that are more resilient they they make something out of it. Um, it takes them down a different path, or it prevents them from going down a path that would have their life would have been totally different and maybe not as great had they had they f- succeeded in that. What, what they were initially trying for. So I think it's really interesting to hear from people. But because I don't want to take too much of your time tonight, I would like Carolyn to give us a case from Cashlack Memorial to get us kind of into the main topic. All right. So we have a great case for you guys tonight. We have a 64-year-old female who's actually currently admitted to your inpatient service for a diabetic foot ulcer and is currently receiving treatment with vancomycin. She does have a history of C. diff that was treated successfully about a month ago, as well as GERD, for which she's on pantoprazole. So while she's in on your service the next day, she's like, Doc, I got something to tell you. I'm having diarrhea. And she's very, very worried that the C. diff is back. Uh, So, Dr. Donsky, um, how would you kind of approach this? Uh, How many loose stools do you think this woman would actually need to even warrant C. diff testing in the first place? So in somebody who has had C. diff in the past and is now uh, on, an, on additional systemic antibiotics, uh, the systemic antibiotics will be the number one risk factor for recurrence. So I would agree with the patient that a recurrence of C. diff is a real worry. The current guidelines uh, recommend that, that you should not do C. diff testing unless clinically significant diarrhea is present. And that really is defined as three or more unformed stools in 24 hours. Um, that, and so what, one thing that I would definitely do is ask the patient, what do you mean uh, 
by diarrhea because oftentimes patients will will have you know one semi-formed stool and and say they have diarrhea so I w- i'd like her to quantify for me how many stools she's actually having and are they really unformed are they liquid or, or what is the characteristics of the stool um and if she definitely is having diarrhea, then the next question really is, is there any other explanation for it? Because again, the guidelines say that you that you should test for C. diff if you have unexplained diarrhea. And so if she received a laxative uh, during her hospitalization because she was constipated and how she's having diarrhea, I would that would be another alternative explanation. Um, if she just was started on, you know, pantoprazole, which can cause a little diarrhea, um, I like I know that, and that's not something that she's been on chronically. So I want to know more about the characteristics of the diarrhea, and and I would she would be a person who I would definitely um, consider testing. I think testing is something. Actually, I know testing is something that I did not really understand much. I was just like, okay, I'm in a hospital. I I ask like I ask somebody what what C diff test do I order, and I would just order it. But when these new guidelines came out, I they they sort of put a lot more emphasis on the type of testing. So I wanted to ask you about that and, and what sort of testing do you advocate for? So, you know, the current guidelines give you two options and they don't tell you which one to, uh, to follow. Uh, so, and I think that's, there are just some caveats for what you should do if you use one option or the other. And I think most of us who are, who are practicing medicine, this is a decision made by the by the lab often. So if your hospital does uh, a nucleic acid amplification test or PCR as a standalone test for C. diff, the main thing to be aware of is that it's a very sensitive test and you may pick up patients who are asymptomatic carriers of C. diff. And so the, the recommendation really is that if you're using that as a standalone test, it's ideal if you include some uh, method to reduce inappropriate testing of patients who may just be curious. So again, asking patients, making sure that patients truly have significant diarrhea with three or more stools in a day, and they don't, they do, have not been on laxatives recently or have some other obvious reason why um, they have diarrhea. And on the other hand, the the alternative approach is kind of kind of the European approach, uh, especially in 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 uh, England. Uh, this approach has been championed has been using a two or three step approach where you first do a test for C. diff antigen with an ELISA, and then follow that up with a toxin test. And the toxin test is used really as a distinguisher uh, to help us sort out if patients have are likely to have C. diff infection with the toxin being positive versus a toxin negative, they may have mild C. diff uh, or they may have be an asymptomatic carrier. Uh, that's not a perfect test, however. So, for you really have to use your clinical judgment uh, in looking at the patient uh, to correlate the clinical findings with uh, with the test results. I wanted to follow up on what you said there. the The definition we had kind of made for diarrhea was greater than three stools in twenty four hours, and it, it, loose stools or watery stools. Those are people that that they would be appropriate for testing for the nucleic acid amplification test, right? That's that's sort of the clinical, especially if they have like other findings that would make you think of C. diff, like the high white count and stuff. Um, okay. So, cause that, that's, I've worked in, I've worked in various hospitals. They will, they don't ask you necessarily, they use the nucleic acid amplification test at, at Cashlack and they, they, if you send them a, 
stool that has too much form to it, they will reject the sample and they won't run the test. So I guess that's their way of sort of, you know, trying to make sure there's some sort of stewardship over this. Um, but the the other thing, I, I don't know if other hospitals have like a built into the electronic health record, but I wonder if, have you seen better ways to sort of make sure this test gets used properly? So with, with either approach to C. diff testing, um, it is recommended that formed stools would be would be rejected because, by definition, um, the unformed stool would be necessary to uh, to have diarrhea. Um, the you know the the problem in, in there is that that is not sufficient. So lots of patients will have unformed stool because they have received laxatives or other other uh, they may have antibiotic associated diarrhea, which gives them some loose stool. Right. Um, and because of that, the, the form stool helps to reduce inappropriate testing. But if you are doing a PCR-based test for C. diff, it's really recommended that you do more than that. That you uh, And there are varied approaches. One of these has been uh, to use the electronic medical record um, and to flag stool samples coming into the lab so that if a, a, if a patient has been on a laxative in the la- received a laxative in the last 48 hours, uh, that stool sample may automatically be rejected. And in other places, they have you know, made an effort to improve documentation of diarrhea. So if, doc- if the nursing note does not say they've had three or more unformed stools, they may reject that, uh, that stool sample as well. This, again, has been most effective when the lab mediates the 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 discontinuation of the stool sample and ask that you call in if you, you the physician has to call to override that. Uh, just with education of doctors and nurses, uh, th- that approach has been significantly less effective at reducing inappropriate testing. It's a lot of moving parts. I, you have to make sure documentation is right on all sides. Like it just it just seems to rely on a lot that I don't know that necessarily happens consistently. So just to go back and dig a little bit more into the the other tests that you were talking about, so the stool, the, the C. diff antigen, is that the GDH? Where And, and that sort of says that, that there's a clostridium species is present, but it, it doesn't necessarily tell you if it's making toxin or not. So the second test is to see if there's toxin. That's correct. The, okay. the GDH is a, is a quite sensitive test. It's, it's nearly equivalent to... PCR and picking up the presence of a C. diff, a seal organism in the GI tract. Um, it, however, is not, uh, it's not specific. So yes, if you have, if a patient is colonized with a non-toxin producing strain of C. diff, that will also be positive. So a positive GDH with a negative toxin could be somebody who has a non-toxigenic strain of C. diff, or it could be someone who uh, is an asymptomatic carrier. They have a toxin producing strain of C. diff, but they have not. They they're not producing enough toxin to 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 uh, result in clinical symptoms. And in 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 a number of recent studies, it's been suggested that those patients who are carrying C. diff but don't have a positive toxin assay, a positive free toxin, uh, will. Uh, have a low risk for going on to develop complications, and you may do just as well by not treating those patients uh, or just observing them to, to and making a decision clinically. For a few of those patients, you may treat them. For a lot of those patients, we don't treat them at all. And so our, our patient, our theoretical patient, who let's say that she was successfully treated for a toxin-producing strain of C. diff, 
How long after completion of treatment can we expect the toxin to remain positive when being tested? So during, um, during treatment of C. diff, uh, as you give vancomycin or other medications to treat C. difficile, the positive test will reduce fairly dramatically. So after we've done a study of this at the VA, and after one day, about 15% of PCR tests will convert to negative. And then it's by, and then it's about 30% by the second day and half of them convert to negative by the third day of treatment. Uh, and toxin goes down, you know, similarly. After, you, at the end of treatment, 10 to 20% of patients may still have a positive uh, PCR for C. diff, and a lower number may have a positive toxin. Uh, after you stop therapy, however, uh, the, the C. diff treatments that we're currently giving uh, kill C. diff, but they also kill off a lot of the normal microbiota. And so the C. diff may regrow, and about half of patients will have detectable C. diff for a period of weeks after uh, successful treatment. And, in those, and about a third of them will have a positive toxin assay about two weeks after stopping treatment. So again, that's something to be aware of if you are uh, retesting this patient. She may have a positive PCR or a positive uh, EIA for toxin, even if you give her a laxative for, if you gave her a laxative and that's why she has diarrhea, she may be right. a false, test false positive. I wanted to just go, uh, just for the nomenclature for the audience, because um, I was not familiar with this, so this is why I'm pointing this out. So the nucleic acid amplification test, that is a, that's the PCR test you're referring to. And that tests for the, is it TCDB gene? Yes, it tests for the toxin B gene. Okay. The C. diff, yep. Okay. And then the ELISA, the enzyme immunoassay, that's the GDH and the toxin. Both those tests are the, the ELISA or enzyme immunoassays. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. All right. So I think, at least I think I have it down now. So we're, so we're sort of, we have our two pathways. We can either go with the PCR test or we can go with the GDH and the toxin testing and clinical judgment always has to weigh in here. It sounds like, and we, Paul asked, we, we sort of just went through that repeat testing is sort of, I guess what Paul was getting at repeat testing, not recommended, right? Repeat testing is not recommended. If the test is negative, the likelihood of recovering of, of, a, of a, the next test being positive has been shown to be very low in many studies with whatever test method you use. And if the, if the test is positive, a number of patients will continue shedding C. diff and continue to have a positive toxin assay. So don't routinely doing repeat testing is not very helpful because even if your symptoms have resolved, the test can remain positive. Yeah. Okay. I, I figured that be, I mean, that's been asked for me. I Students have asked me about that. Uh, residents have asked me about that. And I thought the answer was no, you shouldn't do repeat testing, but I'm glad to hear you confirm that for people. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Carolyn, where are we going to take this next? Do we have another part to the case? So let's say that we have treated, so we sent the CDF test for her because this is the first time we're sending it. We did not repeat it. Um, but it turns out she does have C. diff again. So um, as we kind of progress the treatment, I kind of want to talk about um, some of the biggest changes. So assuming that this, let's assume that this is actually her initial C. diff episode. So how do you actually treat 
an initial CDF episodes per the new IDSA guidelines. Essentially, like why was flagell fired as the first line treatment? Um, yes, this is the biggest area of uh, biggest new change with the guideline is that we metronidazole is no longer uh, recommended. So there's a you know there's a joke in ID that's that uh, has been around for a long time, and that is if your if your mother-in-law got C diff, you would treat her with metronidazole. But if your mother got C. diff, you would give her vancomycin. And that, <laughs> that, um, and that is in, in large part because of the pharmacokinetics of the drug. Uh, if you look at, at the two drugs, vancomycin is not absorbed when you give it orally, and it achieves very high concentrations in the colon where the C. diff is. And on the other hand, metronidazole is almost entirely absorbed in the small intestine. So if you have inflammation of your colon and diarrhea to help move the, van- the metronidazole into your colon, you may get, you get low and inconsistent levels of metronidazole in the colon. So it works. It suppresses C. diff. But a number of studies have shown that it, it's, it works less quickly. You're, it's less uh, effective and kind of microbiologic response is slower um, and, less, and, again, less consistent. Some many patients fail. Um, and so it, so it's been again used and in the old studies, metronidazole and vancomycin were equivalent, um, prior to the 2010 guidelines, the last version of the guidelines, there was a study that showed that in patients with severe C. diff, um, metronidazole was inferior to vancomycin for, for response. And so the previous guidelines dropped metronidazole for severe CDI. The, in the current guidelines, there now is another randomized trial that has shown that metronidazole is inferior to vancomycin also for mild to moderate cases of C. diff. And so they went ahead and, and, and eliminated metronidazole from the, from the standard recommendation based on that evidence, although it's kind of left in there as, a, as, a, as an aside that you know, if, you're pay, if, you, if there's an expense issue uh, because the cost is metronidazole is inexpensive, you might consider um, giving metronidazole as an option. Um, so it's still left in there as an option for mild to moderate only uh, CDI, but the preferred agents are vancomycin uh, and fidaxomycin, both of which are equivalent in efficacy. Curtis, just a couple years ago, I, I remember when I when vancomycin first started to be used a lot more at least, uh, you know, for some patients in the hospital, I remember discharging patients and having them tell me that vancomycin cost them like $1,000. Is that still the case throughout the country? Is that problem gone now that the guidelines are putting it as a first line and it's such a common illness? So that problem is is less than it used to be. So a lot of hospitals now make uh, vancomycin by taking the IV formulation and and making a liquid formulation of vancomycin that you can then fix compounded and given to patients that way. And that's what we've been doing at the VA. Uh, there now is a, a less expensive uh, capsule form of vancomycin as well, which is also uh, you know, quite inexpensive. So that problem is not entirely gone, but it appears that it's, it's significantly less than it used to be. The other question I wanted to ask you, so this for an initial C. diff episode or, or really for any C. diff episode, I think one of the things that tends to confuse people or tends to seem like it's it's uh, is the classification system. So can you tell us how, how would you recommend the audience classifies C. diff infections because that sort of ten, helps with the treatment as well? 
So, and again, the current guidelines really acknowledge that we don't have a great classification scheme, but I think the the recommendation of the guideline is is reasonable, and that is that um, patients who have a white count of greater than 15,000 or a creatinine of greater than 1.5, we can classify as having severe uh, CDI with other patients being considered mild to moderate. Uh, within that classification, however, I would just note that um, you know, if you see, if you can sometimes see a patient who is having, you know, 20 stools and has some abdominal discomfort and you clinically know that that patient has severe CDI. So you would add to severe CDF patients who in your clinical impression, uh, have severe disease. And then fulminant C. difficile really is, is when, when you have an ileus, um, or sepsis, it's really for patients who are sick enough to be in the ICU, um, with CDI, and especially especially the presence of an ileus um, or evolving ileus would be a marker for a fulminant case of CDI. Does the IDSA have any recommendations as to uh, when to get surgery involved? I, obviously, on the inpatient setting. I, I think the AGA, if I remember right, does actually, I think, at, at the severe level. But is, is there something comparable with the IDSA guidelines? So the IDSA guidelines recommend getting surgery involved for fulminant CDI. So if, you, if the patient... Um, has sepsis or, or an ileus um, or evolving ileus, um, those patients would be candidates for a surgery evaluation. One, one more thing, and this, is, this might seem like a small point, but let's say a patient's baseline creatinine is two, and now they have C. diff. Are they automatically severe? Is that purposely built into that number it just, or is yeah. it like 1.5 times normal, and that's where they got that from? You know, they, you know, they just left that. Uh, left the, the, the previous guidelines had had this um, classification that if you were 1.5 times your baseline creatinine, it would be it would be count as severe, and it was just too confusing uh, because. <laughs> You know, people could didn't have a baseline creatinine, or they didn't want to calculate it, and so they just, for simplification purposes, again realizing it's not ideal, said if your creatinine is greater than one point five, and having an elevated creatinine um, and renal insufficiency would be one uh, potential marker for somebody who may uh, have more risk for for adverse outcomes with C diff. Okay, that's I, I like that explanation. I I can I can deal with that. And I would I would just note that the other again the imperfect imperfect situation that we have many times you'll see patients whose white count is greater than fifteen thousand and you know that it's probably because they have pneumonia or some other condition um, it, but we we don't we don't specify that you have a white count of fifteen thousand and it's just due to C diff just for simplification purposes we use those two uh, those two criteria. And it really makes very little difference now anyway. Could be if, if right. you are looking at the current guidelines, Vanco and Fidaxomycin are recommended as first line for severe or mild to moderate um, CDI. It just helps you if, you, if you are thinking about giving metronidazole as an option, um, you're gonna avoid it and somebody's white count is, is above 15. I know though too, they do recommend though in the fulminate to add the IV metronidazole, uh, in addition, if someone has an ileus or they're in this sort of like shock type picture, how long do you recommend folks stay on that IV flagell until they clinically improve for 10 days? Do you treat them for a full course or? 
Yeah, so they, I, I don't think the guidelines specify that that has to stay on for the entire course. So the, the reason why we recommend uh, metronidazole given IV for patients with fulminant C. diff is really particularly for those patients who have an ileus or are maybe evolving into an ileus. And the concern there is that you may be putting a dose of vancomycin, um, and it may all be, if, they're, if their bowels are not working, it may all be sitting in their small intestine and not getting to where it needs to, to be. And so you're adding an IV agent, which is widely distributed systemically, and will hopefully get, it, get in across the inflamed colon and provide some additional benefit. Um, so that's the rationale for adding metronidazole. Um, and you know, in in practice, what I tend to do is I keep the, the patients will be on um, both of those agents. Once they stabilize and they've, they're improved significantly, I would just switch them over to to just vancom- vancomycin, and I often reduce the dose too. Um, the the fulminant uh, the guidelines for fulminant CDI suggest 500 milligrams four times a day, which is a, a lot of vancomycin, and so I tend to back off on the dosing as well once the patients stabilize. Oh, okay. Very interesting. And so, so with the with the initial infection, um, it sounds like most people are going to get vancomycin, the one hundred twenty five milligrams four times a day. The the and and they keep mentioning fidaxomycin. It, it seems like probably impractical for most patients to to go to that as first line just because of cost. Is that mostly being reserved currently, at least in your practice, for um, for like recurrent infections? Yeah, and I think that's true for a lot of um, for a lot of people. It's really if it weren't if it weren't for the cost issue, I would I would probably give fidaxomycin for essentially all of the patients that I treat with C diff um, because it does have a lower risk for recurrence with equal efficacy uh, to vancomycin. Uh, but again, in reality, because of the cost, um, we tend to reserve it for patients with uh, with a recurrence um, who may be at high risk. Um, for subsequent recurrences. I do, I also sometimes use this as a bridge to fecal transplants. Um, so there are some patients, if I'm giving them uh, transplant by oral capsules, I may um, I may give fidaxomycin as a bridge to that because I'm not gonna clean out their, their intestinal tract before I do the transplant. And then finally, there is a, uh, this is not part, not in the current uh, not recommended in the current guidelines, but there is one kind of observational study where they looked at fidaxomycin tapers uh, for patients with multiple recurrences and suggested that they got pretty good results by doing a variable length vancomycin taper over the course of a month or so after um, after an initial uh, course of therapy. So I sometimes do that as a again as a patient for patients who have multiple recurrences. I may do a fidaxomycin taper. Um, I think that was was that the extend trial that Carolyn you had put one in the in the show notes here is that I think that might have been it. Yeah, yeah no, no, it's actually it's that there's another study where they prior to the extend trial where they had done this for patients who had multiple recurrences. So these are patients who are really candidates for fecal transplant who've had two or three or four uh, episodes of CDI in the past. Um, and they they gave those patients uh, a, a fidaxomycin taper over a course of about a month. It was used typically two courses of fidaxomycin. The extend trial is similar, um, but it is it is a different. The, the extend trial is looking at patients with initial cases or first recurrences. Okay, 
So fidaxomycin normally is like 10, 10 milligrams or 100 milligrams twice a day, right? And then they, with the taper, at some point they go to just once a day and just keep it on. Is that essentially what they do with it? Yeah, fidaxomycin is given uh, twice a day. um, And with the EXTEND trial, um, you give the first five days um, with 200 milligrams twice a day for five days. And then if the patient has responded, you can then switch them over to one one dose every other day uh, to complete the course. So that would be an additional, you know, 10 days, uh, 20 days of treatment. Okay. I'm curious. I know that like, I know fidoxamycin is really expensive, but recurrent C. diff seems to be such a huge issue. Uh, is there anything to suggest that there's actually a cost benefit with fidoxamycin, if you're saying that it actually decreases long-term reoccurrence rates? Yeah, so there are. there's a lot of debate in the literature. So if you do a, a search on cost-effectiveness and uh, fidoxamycin, I actually just did this today. You can find um, systematic reviews and, and cost analyses that suggest there's a benefit of fidoxamycin, and you can find others that suggest that the it does reduce recurrences, but it's not cost effective. So there's still a lot of debate in the uh, in the literature regarding, uh, you know, is it really uh, cost effective? The, the evidence is not entirely clear. In my you know, in my opinion, um, because there's this this debate, the easiest thing for clinicians would be if would be an algorithm of some sort that says if you're if my patient meets these three out of these four criteria, fidaxomycin may provide a better option. And we really haven't come up with that as a way to guide clinicians. So it's still, um, you know, it's still a matter of if your hospital, you know, supports use of fidaxomycin for these patients or if in your personal practice, it's not, it hasn't become something that is, we have a clear benefit for this subgroup of patients. I wanted to ask about how you recommend the vancomycin taper is done some it to me it seems like people do it a little differently based on like once someone's in their second or third recurrence it seems like kind of like people just do whatever they think might work is that tr- is that true or am i just misunderstanding the practice is it still that much of like like with steroid tapers for example for, for COPD everyone does things a little bit differently yeah i think that's somewhat true you know, you know in our facility we have uh, vancomycin taper as part of our um, order, we have an order set for C. diff. And so there's kind of a standard taper that we use in our facility, but for hospitals that do not have that, um, the, you know, the current guidelines recommend a a wide range. You can, you can taper for, you know, three or four months. Um, the, there's really no, so no one has done a, a trial to really prove that vancomycin tapers are superior to fidaxomycin or, or other regimens for, for C. diff. Um, the, you know, the rationale for tapering vancomycin is that it may give, as you taper the vancomycin dose down uh, to a low dose, the normal microbiota of the, of the colon may be able to start to recover and fight off uh, C. diff trying to regrow. Um, and also, you just are simply giving more time for the C. diff to clear out of the out of the colon. Some of those uh, spores may, that are still hanging around at the end of a 10-day course may be gone by the time you get out to a longer uh, treatment course. Um, there is the, the only study that really looked at different durations of treatment 
did not suggest that a longer duration did not seem to do any better than a shorter duration in terms of reducing this. But again, it wasn't a controlled trial. You mentioned frozen capsules for the fecal microbiota transplant. Can you can you talk a little bit about, let's say, we'll take recurrence first. And for recurrent C. diff, are you going to the capsules as your primary for practice, uh, primary practice, or are you are you having it administered by colonoscopy? I know there was an article recently sort of comparing the two. Yeah, so um, the we started out, uh, and I think we were, I think in Cleveland, we were probably the first VA in the country to do, be routinely doing fecal transplants. We started out doing these by colonoscopy, um, and then. We transitioned relatively quickly to first frozen capsules, but now we actually do freeze-dried capsules, and we work together with one of the other hospitals in town uh, as kind of a, a little bit of a joint program. And uh, so we have now done, I think, as between the two hospitals, maybe 100 or more by freeze-dried capsules versus you know 40 or 50 by colonoscopy. So most of our transplants now are done by capsules. Um, in the outpatient clinic, uh, we just see patients and consent them and give them capsules uh, that way. And that's become a standard uh, practice for us. And I do this, it, again, it depends on the patient. Um, patients who have a second recurrence, I usually, I, usually we would like them to have a fidaxomycin or a vancomycin taper. And if they fail one of those, then we might move on to, um, to fecal transplant. Um, as our as our approach, um, but again, we're that we're doing this pretty routinely now. Can you talk about what the prep? Let's say we have someone on a fidaxomycin taper; they're still having diarrhea. How would you? What would be the process of giving them these freeze dried capsules that you're talking about? And how many capsules do they get? Just so people kind of know if they're if they're telling a patient that you might need this, how how would you counsel the patient? Like what's going to happen? Yeah, and the and again the freeze dried capsules are it would be very similar to uh, probably more commonly people are using frozen capsules. The process would be very similar. For colonoscopy, we typically recommend a full colonoscopy prep where you're cleaning out the colon, getting rid of all of the vancomycin and all of the uh, that that may be there that might kill off a transplant and and trying to eliminate any residual C diff from the colon and other other bacteria that may compete. For capsules, there are there are some studies where they've done a prior preparation, but we do not do a prior prep uh, for patients. So patients really, um, they take, we usually stop their, uh, to give their last dose of fidaxomycin or vancomycin two days before the transplant. Uh, then they come into the, to the uh, clinic and we give them capsules and I have them take uh 30 capsules total, uh, although there is a recent study where with freeze-dried capsules, they've given it gotten it down to as few as two to four capsules. Oh, wow. Yep. And that's just by concentrating and using special methods to really get a very high concentration of bacteria. And, uh, you know, I sometimes let patients take uh, take some of the capsules home. They can show me that they can swallow, you know, half of them and then tell them they can take the rest of them after they get home. I'm sure people... I'm sorry, did you say 30? <laughs> That's so many. Like, over over what period of time do they need to take 30 pills? Like, in one day? In two days? In a week? Yeah, so we would typically give it... So we have a number of elderly people who gobble down 30 of them in a half an hour in clinic and have no no issues with that. Oh, I hope they're not chewing them. <laughs> no. <they're>, <laughs> but again, with freeze-drying, they're pretty, uh, pretty odorless, actually. And... Uh, 
you know, people do fine. I, you know, again, I tell them they can take it, take it over one day or over a course of two days. Um, and I give them that option, whatever they're comfortable with. I uh, honestly, be, before you said that, I was like just picturing them just having like a stack of pills and just like 30 sips of water in a row. And they're just kind of like, or wow, that is, well, let's, let's all cross our fingers that the two to four capsule protocol takes off and really, uh, holds up for, for future studies. No kidding. Their C. diff's better, but they're in heart failure exacerbation now from all the sips of water. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could convince a patient to do anything that requires 30 pills. Yeah. When you've had multiple recurrences of C. diff, it's, and the other, other option is a colonoscopy. It's, it's actually not bad there. Yeah. it's a fair point. They're, they're just happy. They don't smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> I see them. I would just mention what I can just mention one other thing about uh, fecal transplant. So again, my impression about fecal transplants is that this is likely to progress so that at some point in the future, unless we run into issues, this will be something that everyone, you know, internal internists will be will be doing able to administer these in their in their practice. You won't even really need an ID person to do this. Um, and then the other place where this is kind of experimental as well and not recommended in the current guidelines, but for patients who have fulminant C diff, we occasionally see patients where uh, with you know their case series where some patients have had great responses to fecal transplant. So we recently had a patient, an HIV positive patient who had fulminant C diff, uh, whose white count, I think it started out at 25,000 and it was gradually rising up to almost 50,000. And he was due to go to the operating room uh, the following day. And we did a, we did a fecal transplant in this case uh, with, through an NG tube. And uh, he responded miraculously and he was felt a lot better by the next morning and his white count came down and, uh, and he, we saved his colon. Wow. That's incredible. Was was he off antibiotics when you did that? Like, did you just have to stop them? It sounds like they weren't working anyway, but. Yeah. So we, so the way we did the, the transplant, so the, that's the, our concern. If you have a patient who's on vancomycin, um, that will have, that will kill off and, and metronidazole, those antibiotics will kill off the normal, the normal microbiome. And so that is, you know, that's why they cause recurrences. And so we switched this patient a day earlier when we thought that we might be doing the transplant to fidaxomycin. And then uh, when we came in, we uh, we left them on the fidaxomycin for a couple of days. Again, fidaxomycin is very narrow. This is the advantage. It's a narrow spectrum. It only kills off the uh, clostridia, essentially. So it leaves bacteroides and majority of the anaerobes there. And so we were prepared to give him a second transplant, but again, he responded so well to one transplant that we did not do um, additional transplants. Very cool case. There, there was a letter to the editor in the New England Journal. I think it was June of this year, and I'll put it in the show notes. And they, they basically, they said that they did this. I think it was a small series, like twenty patients. Like nine, nine got a for initial C diff infection. They got a. Uh, an FMT and then for uh, the other 11 just got the standard treatment and they at least in that very small series they said it, it, it looks favorable and there I guess there's a bigger trial ongoing is that something that that you've done too like if you tried to treat the primary infection with with a fecal transplant yeah we have not um, done primary uh, episodes um, but Again, uh, this again is part of the the kind of rapidly moving picture yeah. with uh, 
fecal transplants in that there is a there was a recent publication um, as well that uh, where they gave uh, patients fecal transplants in that series. Uh, there appeared to be no benefit in giving fecal transplants to patients who had mild to moderate C. diff, but for patients who had severe C. diff, uh, giving a fecal transplant actually was associated with a reduction in mortality over uh, over standard uh, standard treatment. Wow! So you're saying that the next round of IDSA C. diff guidelines could look completely different, <laughs> and maybe Vanco will be gone by then. <laughs> um. Well. <laughs> no, I think vancomycin, it's going to be harder to get rid of than metronidazole, I think. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, it's got a weaker hold or it's got a stronger hold on things. Well, yeah. we have we have a bunch of, well, Carolyn, I'll, I'll let you run things here. I know we have social media questions we wanted to get to. Is there anything else you wanted to ask before we? I did want to ask one thing since you're an expert definitely in infection control is um I always see families and patient members rooms with C diff who like aren't wearing gowns. Yeah, should they? Too. We should they? Should they? We should they be wearing gowns? Should they be worried about getting C diff? Um, how do you counsel these patients and their families? Yeah. So what I so I and I often get this question not so much for visitors, but people going home from the hospital are often um, very concerned that their grandchildren or someone in their family will get C diff. You know, what I tell people is that unless your family member is taking antibiotics, which are the number one risk factor for C. diff or are immunocompromised for some reason, uh, the risk to them is very low. Um, and again, we as healthcare workers are around C. diff all the time, and we don't usually worry about getting C. diff. Um, it's just if we, if we take an antibiotic, we'll be at risk too. I actually have a, we published a case series of healthcare workers who got C. diff after taking antibiotics. Same thing for, for people at home. Um, that's the main risk factor. I do. We do recommend that if you come to the hospital to visit, that you would put on the gown and gloves. Um, but we don't. I don't think we enforce that very well. I think that's the main issue. And have the guidelines softened on soap and water hand washing? Like I was a little bit surprised to see that alcohol. Like maybe it's kind of okay, but just go ahead and wash your hands. But like it just seems like they sort of softened a little bit on in terms of of what you can do. I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. So you know. Because there isn't a randomized trial that shows that that hand washing is better than using alcohol, the guidelines are very conservative. They don't want to recommend this, but it simply it really doesn't make any sense to uh, to use alcohol after coming out of a seated room after you take off your gloves because there is a small risk for contamination even with the removal of gloves. You can that you can you can contaminate your hands uh, when you're taking off your your protective equipment. So I recommend soap and water hand washing anytime you're coming out of a C. diff room after removing your your PPE. The current guidelines, however, are they're, they're the same. I think they're really the same as they were last time. They say if you have an outbreak, uh, then you might consider uh, re, um, enforcing you know hand washing with soap and water. Um, but otherwise, it's okay to use alcohol. It is true that this, this, the gloves will keep most of the spores um, off your hands. Gotcha. Go wash your hands is what you're saying. Yeah. And I would, so, and I would just recommend, you know, one other thing that we recommend, um, you know, in, in a, for patients with C. diff, you know, we, we tell them to, you know, bleach their bathroom at home. But, you know, we recommend patient hand washing as well. So the patients and, and bathing for that matter as well. Right. You know, patients who have C. diff, especially in the acute phase, will have will be 
covered from head to toe in, in C. diff. And you know, as that infection resolves and their diarrhea starts to go away, you know, we, we want them to change their clothes, you know, shower as best they can, and regularly wash their hands if they're leaving their room because they will have the hands tend to be uh, contaminated with spores. So we re- strongly recommend that. Great. So we have some great questions, too, from our social media. Uh, so the first question that our listeners have for you is, is there any evidence that loperamide will actually cause toxic megacolon when used in C. diff diarrhea? So there are some case uh, reports of toxic megacolon in patients who have with C. diff or patients with ulcerative colitis that loperamide may uh, have been, has been associated with uh, development of toxic megacolon. Uh, that and, and so in the current guidelines, what they really recommend is that if someone has an acute diarrheal syndrome um, or acute diagnosis of C. diff, that you not give them loperamide for due to that concern. Uh, however, uh, for patients who've been on treatment for for several days who are showing signs of improvement, uh, you know, I actually don't mind giving them an anti-motility agent of some point after day five to seven of of treatment if they're still having significant um, diarrhea. They're improving, but not improving fast enough. Um, and then we have a lot of patients who have, kind of, they progress from C. diff to kind of an irritable bowel syndrome that takes a long time for them to normalize. So I occasionally will give loperamide to those patients, but I do it while they're on kind of undercover of the C. diff treatment. That's awesome. I can't actually wait to try that out with some of my patients. I'm sure they're going to they're gonna love it. <laughs> By like day five, they got to just be so tired of having that much <laughs> diarrhea. <laughs> um, another question that we have from our, our listeners out there is that, so you have a patient with C. diff and you aren't really sure what the trigger is. Uh, what do you think twice about prescribing them clindamycin? And I think they're just trying to sort of ask, you know, what sort of antibiotics uh, are, tend to be associated with C. diff? What are you trying to avoid if you can? So, you know, I try to avoid uh, clindamycin, no matter what, I try to. It's a it's a very strong promoter of of C. difficile. So if I have an alternative, I almost never give uh, clindamycin uh, at all to patients. Um, I always look for an alternative. So if someone has received, you know, if someone has received an antibiotic that and got C. diff, it's not so much that I try to avoid the antibiotic that they previously received, but if I have a choice, uh, if I'm looking at a choice of different antibiotics that I can give, I try to choose the one that, at least in theory, might be less likely to um, to promote C. diff. And so, for example, there are a number of recent studies and you know case case control studies that have suggested that doxycycline has a relatively low risk for for C. diff. Um, it, it doesn't cause much adverse impact on the normal intestinal flora, and it actually has some inhibitory activity against C. diff. So if I have a choice of giving doxycycline instead of moxifloxacin, for example, to, to a patient, I will, I will do that. So, and there are other agents, you know, that may also have some uh, benefit. So Bactrim is relatively narrow in spectrum. It doesn't kill C. diff, but it has, it's relatively narrow in spectrum in comparison to some other, other agents. If you, if in your facility, you're trying to reduce the risk of C. diff, uh, you know, we always say that that penicillins, piperacillin tazobactam, for example, would be preferred over cephalosporins because in, in, as a generalization, you know, cephalosporins have no activity against C. difficile, uh, whereas the, you know, piperacillin tazobactam and the penicillins uh, are active against C. diff. And if they're excreted in bile, you can actually get some 
uh, inhibitory activity while you're taking those those agents, and maybe less likely to get C diff. Oh, I would have. That's that's interesting. I I would have thought it was the other way around. I thought I would have thought that uh, you know cephalosporins were narrower than piptazo. So that's that's good to know. Yeah, and within the you know cephalosporins are a broad class of uh, antibiotics. There, some of them have more anaerobic activity, mm-hmm. and some that are excreted primarily in uh, in through the kidneys, and that may have less activity. So you know ceftriaxone would be a strong promoter of C diff. Whereas, you know, cefazolin or even cefepime might potentially, might at least in theory, be less likely to promote C. diff. Do you, do you have like a C. diff hierarchy handout or something that you, uh, that you give for teaching purposes? That would be great. We could, uh, we could put it in our notes. I, I know I've seen one on like a pharmacy website before, but I could send it to you to fact check if, if, you, if you'd be down with that. <laughs> sure. Um, so, um, trying to think. So I, there is a, a review article. I think I'm the second author on a review article from several years ago, where we it was focused. The focus was antibiotics and C diff infection, where we do talk about agents that are more or less likely to promote uh, C diff. It really focuses on primarily on agents that are that have activity against C diff versus uh, versus less activity. Um, but um, okay, yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything else that, that's really good for that. Yeah, I'll be sure. We'll link it in our notes. Yeah, that way we can all take a look. And on that note, too, uh, so probiotics, what do you think about them? Do you ever use them in your practice? Do you recommend any brands? Is there even any evidence for them? So there is um, there is some evidence uh, for probiotics uh, as a prevention for antibiotic-associated diarrhea and some evidence, including in, in kind of meta-analyses, that it may reduce uh, be good for primary prevention or, or even secondary prevention of, of C. diff recurrence. Uh, the, what the guidelines say uh, is that although there is some evidence, it's just not that uh, the evidence is just it's conflicting and it's not that convincing that that probiotics are likely to be that beneficial. Um, so I personally do not. I, I don't. Uh, I don't remind, mind if any if patients take probiotics or if they eat yogurt, uh, but I don't personally prescribe uh, probiotics for C. difficile. I think ultimately we need to develop. You know, kind of, we, you know, obviously the um, you know fecal transplants work. The pro, most of the probiotics that are kind of lactobacillus or bifidobacteria based don't seem to be nearly as effective. And so I think what we need to do is generate. Uh, more effective uh, probiotics. The on a on a prior episode, the great Dr. Paul Sachs he he suggested because we were asking him similar questions about C diff uh, with with the antibiotics, and he was he was suggesting maybe maybe in the future after after you complete a course of antibiotics, you might take uh, fecal like the capsules, and you might repopulate the floor that way with healthy bacteria, and that would be sort of your prevention. What like once you completed the course, I thought that was a a novel idea. Like, and you're if you're saying that the two to four pills is might might be enough to give a fecal transplant, then that might be like you take one pill after you complete your course of antibiotics or something like that. I I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, I I agree, and there, there's um. You know, one approach that's been discussed but really never, um, never studied is maybe we should all bank uh, a stool, some stool samples, uh, and we could have our own uh, replace our own flora after we take um, antibiotics, as opposed to getting some stranger's uh, bacteria. <laughs> 
Uh, I my I was just thinking that my kids would really my kids would really love this show that we've been just talking about <laughs> fecal matter the whole time. Sure, um, someone's going to listen to this and then start a startup just on that topic. Yeah. I well, there is one in Boston that we had uh, talked about before. Is that that I can't remember the name of it, but they they don't need a free plug anyway, right, Paul? No, no. <laughs> But there is, yeah, there is a startup, uh, but it was, I, I believe it was founded because their friend had C. diff and they were, they were, they wanted to help their friend. So supposedly that's the lore behind why they started it. Yeah, there is, I mean, there is a, a, a group in, uh, if it's the same group you're, that you're thinking of, they would, they would, uh, you know, open biome, put in a plug, mm-hmm. they, you know, they bank, uh, stool samples. They have a group of very smart, you know, MIT students, I think, who, provide stool samples and uh, they ship them around the country. And I think most people who are doing fecal transplants now probably use that type of arrangement that uh, it's easier. It, it just takes a lot of the the work out of it rather than having your own donors. Yeah. Um, you get samples that way. Right. Yeah. We, we, uh, on a previous episode, we had talked about some of the ins and outs of that. And it seems like the, the, the donor screening is pretty rigorous to make sure that people aren't going to get sicker from taking these these transplants. So I'm sure that's yes. something that patients ask you about a lot. Yes, and we follow you know standard uh screening for uh you know blood tests and stool samples. Um probably not as rigorous as they do at the commercial or at the open biome group. One one other question I wanted to ask you, and uh, then I'll, I'll if Paul and Carolyn have a, a final question, I think we need to let you go. The patients, the patient that we initially had, say this is a woman. She has known history of C diff. She's coming in the hospital. She's going to need broad spectrum antibiotics. Is there any utility in like putting them on oral vancomycin, like at a lower dose than the treatment dose, to try to like prevent C diff from taking hold? So that is an active area of, uh, first of all, debate, but also of, of study. So um, I know, and, and, so, and there, is, there is some uh, data, a couple of publications now and more are coming, um, that the, and the data is a little bit mixed. The, one of the studies suggested that if you had an initial episode, it wasn't really beneficial. But if you had, if you'd already had a, a, sec, a, a recurrence, it might be beneficial to put you back on uh, sub, kind of suppressive vancomycin. Um, and again, more studies are coming. I know in in, in uh, bone marrow transplant unit, for example, they gave uh, every gave a lot of the patients uh, oral vancomycin suppression. The other part of your question that was actually very interesting. Um, so vancomycin we give in when we give 125 milligrams four times a day achieves very high concentrations that are so high in fact that they it that vancomycin which is a gram positive drug kills bacteroides uh, because the concentrations are so high. So this is uh, it's a very important point that in theory we could reduce the dose of vancomycin uh, so that it 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 may be more narrow in spectrum and preserve bacteroides and might be less damaging to the to the microbiome. And if you were going to give it as a suppressive uh, suppressive therapy, um, that's what you would want to do. You'd like to try to make it as uh, as harmless as as you possibly can uh, to reduce adverse effects. Mm. Paul or Carolyn? 
I don't have any final questions, but I do have a C. diff joke. <laughs> okay, go for it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not getting in let's the way see. Of that. So everyone I've told it to today hasn't been sold on it, but I'm hoping that after we had this discussion that you guys will appreciate it. So you have time to take it national. Great. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we'll see if you guys enjoy it. But a C. diff, he is going to his primary care doctor for his yearly routine visit, as all good C. diff spores do. So uh, his primary care doctor is like, hey, look, you know, I noticed that you're kind of gaining weight and I'm really worried about um, kind of your unhealthy weight. And I think we really need to make some lifestyle changes. So I want you to work on your diet and get more exercise. Cedif says, exercise? I don't like that. I'm not going to exercise. Doctor says, well, you know, it's really important. It's like part of your health and trying to keep you healthy. Sita says, I'm not going to do that because I'm anaerobic. Oof. Yeah. I feel like Stuart, <laughs> no, Stuart's with so us much. here in spirit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Listen, Stuart would be doing okay. cartwheels down the hall. It's just, you just don't have <laughs> the right, right audience here. So. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you a small subset of our, of our audience would love, will love that joke. So thank you. I, I think probably a huge subset, actually. It's, yeah, that was that was good. <laughs> Thank Curtis, you. <laughs> Curtis loved it. Well, you don't hear many C diff jokes. You hear a lot of stool jokes, but not just pure C diff. So. All right. Well, thank you for being a spectacular oh, guest. Gosh. Oof. Oh boy. I think we better get take home points. Uh this is getting a little <laughs> Yeah, uh Curtis, did you have some take home points that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, I mean, I really just uh, one main point, and that is that, you know, we we see patients who have C. diff infection, um, but I think all of us who, who work in the hospital have to appreciate that C. diff uh, colonization is very common. There are more patients out there who are asymptomatically carrying toxin-producing strains of C. diff than there are uh, who develop disease, and that really complicates everything that we do uh, for infection control and also for diagnostic testing, because if we, again, if we give our patients a laxative or, um, or if they have diarrhea for some other reason, um, we could diagnose them with C. diff and end up giving them some antibiotics that they don't really need. So that's, I think, just keeping that um, in mind as you think about diagnosing and treating C. diff, that you know, there's a lot of C. diff out there that is not uh, not causing uh, causing disease. Well, I think I think you've armed us with the knowledge to to deal with that now, and I think everyone knows a lot more about the testing and the treatment of C. diff, and hopefully we'll see some some uh, more responsible practice in this area. And I'm re- I'm excited some of the things that you talked about here uh, to kind of follow this because it sounds like, as Carolyn pointed out, the the next guidelines are probably going to be have some differences again from uh, the previous ones. I agree. It's 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 rapidly evolving. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to join the Curbsiders. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We'd love to hear your feedback, so send an email to us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com or just reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Carolyn Chan. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and goodbye. And thank you to... 
Carolyn Chan for producing and helping to write this episode, as well as to all of our team of curbsiders, especially our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. <laughs>